Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Ravi Srinath, Managing Director of Data for Good advisory firm, Ripple Research. It was recorded in April 2023. Ripple Research operates at the intersection of data science, behavioral psychology, and social impact, collaborating with universities, international organizations, and businesses to conduct research and deliver insights on key themes, including climate change, misinformation, and mental health, to name but a few. Amongst other things, Ravi and I discussed the benefits of applying big data to pressing challenges like the social impacts of climate change, what aggregated online activity can tell us about society, and how we can use those kinds of insights to create more impactful communication. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Ravi Srinath. Hey Ravi, how you doing? Good, thanks. And you? Very well, thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Thanks so much for this. It's great to be on the podcast. I'll just jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about Ripple Research and the work that it does? So Ripple Research is a social science research and advisory firm. And we specialize in analyzing large-scale social data to provide insights into social, cultural, and political trends. Our tagline, in fact, is big data for solving big problems. So by leveraging the power of big data and machine learning methods, we are able to provide a unique perspective on complex social issues to generate insights that can inform more effective policy and decision-making. Our research and insights have also been published in New York Times, Politico, Fast Company, Wired, and many other magazines and publications. And more pertinent to the current conversation, climate change is one of Ripple Research's main areas of focus. We developed a range of tools to analyze language and narratives around climate change, including sentiment analysis and topic modeling and lexicon analysis and many others. These tools allow Ripple Research to identify key narratives, actors, and trends in the climate change discourse, and also to track how these evolve over time. Using these insights, we also develop products and solutions that can deliver direct impact. Just just to clarify and, and to provide context in case somebody uh, doesn't know what we're talking about. I mean, every day, millions and even billions of us go online to share our opinions or perceptions, either subjective or objective, in a free and completely unprompted way. And all of this data is just out there. It's in public domain. Anybody can access it. Anybody can read it. We're not going and checking into private chats or, or DMs or anything like that. This is something that people have posted completely uh, voluntarily out into the world. And we call this unprompted data because as opposed to a survey or a structured uh, interview or a focus group discussion or other data collection methods, which we call prompted data, where people are responding to a question. This is voluntary data. People are just sharing in a free and open way their, their perceptions and opinions. And for us, this data source is very valuable because it's free from most biases that creep into many data collection practices, either on the questioner side or on the responder side. So we can put this to use in so many fascinating ways. On one hand, you can use it to sell more uh, soda. On the other hand, you can try to figure out how to solve climate change. What a wonderful idea. So the next question is just one that I ask everybody, right? It's kind of bringing your perspective, your unique insight to this 
very broad issue. And the question is, how do you think that communication can contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place? It's, it's a great question. Uh, effective communication plays a crucial role in shaping perceptions. The way we communicate can influence how we perceive the world around us, and in turn, our perceptions can shape our reality. Effective communication can play a critical role in mitigating the worst effects of climate change by raising awareness, building public support, mobilizing action, and finally, fostering collaboration. Our perspective at Triple Research is that fostering collaboration is a key to address runaway climate change. And communication helps foster this collaboration by creating spaces for dialogue and for sharing information and for stimulating collective action. The bits of the work that I kind of dug into um, and what brought me here was the work on climate anxiety that Ripple Research have done. So when we talk about climate anxiety, um, generally, I wonder if there's anything from from your perspective, that is missed, that we need to bring to the table? So we've done a lot of research on climate anxiety, but the field itself is quite evolving and it's in its early stages, right? So even external research is quite limited and, and keeps changing over time as more and more information comes and more evidence comes to light. There are some things that are currently, I think, need a little bit more attention. I think there is a little bit of attention on these topics, but can definitely benefit from a little bit more. Uh, number one is... We think of climate anxiety as a standalone monolithic concept. And our research tells us quite a lot, very clearly and extremely graphically and visually, that it's not. And the, the key is intersectionality. Climate anxiety varies based on gender, based on age, based on socioeconomic demographics, and so on and so on. But also, climate anxiety is not one umbrella term, right? It's not one term. It comprises of a lot of different things. And this nuance is what is, I think, uh, missing in the current discourse. I think it needs a little bit more attention to unpack what is climate anxiety. And once you do that, you see climate anxiety is a range of emotions or psychological states. It's climate anger, it's eco-grief, it's despair, it's helplessness, it's hopelessness, it's also futility. So it's a whole bunch of these emotions and psychological states that all have different drivers and different motivations and probably need different approaches to address. So that's, that's a big aspect that's missing currently. The second aspect I would say is about how we also see climate anxiety in isolation. I don't think we should see climate anxiety in isolation. Climate anxiety is a form of anxiety where climate is a stressor. But our research also shows that people who are prone to climate anxiety are also prone to general anxiety. And we all know that general anxiety can be caused by various factors, economic pressures, family pressures, relationship problems, all kinds of things. So it's we need to take mental wellness as a holistic approach and not just isolate climate anxiety alone. Even though the drivers are very specific in this case, it's, it's part of a bigger puzzle. What does ripple research then bring to the table to kind of respond to that so this is where our data analysis systems our methods our tools and uh, all the research that we've already done come to bear right so this is probably the biggest reason why we created ripple research in the first place using our data we can mine large-scale data sources and when i say large-scale data sources this includes many digital media channels, including social media channels. We can look at what's happening in the news. We can segment this by geography, by age groups, by demographic groups. And this is not new technologies in many ways, 
but it's a new application in a new field. And we're bringing to bear a lot of uh, technologies and processes and systems from other fields into the field of uh, climate change research. So this is where we can add value in the sense that we can look at narratives across the world, how they're shaped, how they're shifted, who's shaping these narratives, and what's causing an uptick or even a downtrend, and, and how people are reacting to this. And we can also identify what solution seems to exist. What are the antidotes? So instead of taking a top-down view of the world, saying I'm an expert sitting in, uh, in a university or in a government agency somewhere, we are actually listening to the people and democratizing the voice of the people in a way we are able to understand real-time concerns. So that's, that's our biggest capability that we can bring to the table. And because of this, we can understand the nuance. We can understand how the geographical variations matter and, and everything else around that. So we kind of understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. But I wonder if you could give some explanation of across the research into climate anxiety that you've done at Ripple Research, what are some of the key findings? How have results changed over time? And where are we right now? Our research into climate anxiety has identified a number of key findings. One of the most consistent findings is that climate change is a significant source of stress and anxiety for many people, particularly younger generations. This sounds very obvious, but we actually have the data to see and understand how this is evolving as well. This anxiety can be driven by a range of factors, including concerns about the future of the planet, impacts of climate change on health and well-being, and a sense of powerlessness or hopelessness in the face of the problem. Another finding is that climate anxiety can also have impacts on, as we discussed earlier, on mental health and well-being. We can see that climate anxiety can lead to depression, anxiety disorders, other mental health issues. It can also lead to physical health problems, such as sleep disturbances, headaches, fatigue, and so on. So we can track all of this. We can identify very strong correlations. We can't obviously establish causations with the data that we have, but at least we can track correlations quite closely. And climate anxiety and all its complexity can also have major second and third order effects. So we're already noticing emerging signals about how people do not want to have children because of climate anxiety or climate guilt rather and how many people have stopped taking flights, even at the cost of missing significant family events and milestones of friends and family and many others. Our research has also started to explore the role of climate anxiety in shaping public attitudes and behaviors around climate change. We are building a first version of our climate behavior model internally based on our findings uh, on how climate anxiety can be a motivator for action and how it can lead people to become more engaged in activism and advocacy around the issue. And also how climate anxiety can lead to disengagement and apathy as people feel overwhelmed by the scale of the problem and their own inability to affect change. Or in some extreme cases where extreme climate anxiety, we can also see leads to climate denial. People don't want to deal with it at all. We've actually seen many instances where they say, I would rather just not hear anything more, or I would rather believe that this is not happening. So all of these are important insights that have huge implications. So we are able to see all of this. Some of them might be weak signals. Some of them might be very, very emergent stage, but we have a system to monitor them, to understand them and to track them. I'm just thinking if I'm the listener and I haven't seen the graphs that are on Riffle Research's uh, website, which I think are really helpful to understanding what we're talking about. Perhaps you could try and give some idea of what kinds of you know events in society can have an impact on climate anxiety or 
or on hope? You know, what kinds of things are we talking about that happen in reality that then have an, uh, a ripple effect, I suppose, if you like, um, on uh, the conversation at large? Yeah, I think that's that's a good point that you raised. So one of the most striking examples for us internally, it was almost like a wake-up moment, was when we were seeing these charts that came out of our data analysis. There was this one massive spike, literally one of the, the biggest spike that was uh, in the data that showed a high, high, high amount of negative emotion being expressed. And when we dug into what was causing this, the drivers of this particular spike, we saw it was actually Greta's speech to the UN. We thought, I mean, this was not a normal conclusion that we thought it would be inspiring. It would be a call to action for a lot of people. But what we also noticed is that there was a lot of negative emotion being shared around this particular thing. There was a lot of hopelessness. There was a lot of despair. I mean, her whole speech was about, we need solutions and it's, we need help right now. And we are currently powerless, like you are the guys in power, you, you need to take action. So this resonated and had, like you said, the ripple effects uh, along a wide range of population groups around the world, across many countries. And this spikes fear, this spikes despair. Sometimes these are the incidences that even might have a counterproductive effect, unintended, of course. And this is something that we need to understand. This is something that somebody who has so much voice and so much power and so much influence, uh, whether it be Greta or Biden or Trump or Bill Gates or anybody else, needs to understand what are the unintended consequences or the externalities of their words and actions. So if you raise awareness about a problem, but without raising us any solutions, without providing any antidotes, it, it actually will it have the intended impact that you're trying to have is something that we all need to, as communicators, need to keep in mind and, and tailor our communications accordingly. I guess the, the next question since you brought up Greta, is um, how do kind of climate activists then uh, around the world, how do they influence the public discourse in comparison to, say, academics or the release of new reports from various bodies or industry even? Climate activists, academics, all of these other stakeholders play important roles in shaping public discourse and climate change. But they do so in different ways, and they also have different degrees of influence. Climate activists, we can even call them as the front lines of mobilizing public opinion and driving policy change. Activism could also lead to significant public backlash. I mean, we've seen a lot of videos, a lot of media around people blocking streets, but you're blocking somebody legitimately going on their way to make a living and you're having a negative impact. And as you said earlier, you can also measure it and quantify how much of an impact it's having, even positive versus negative. On the other hand, academics also play a critical role in shaping public discourse on this topic, but they do so in a more indirect way. Through research, through analysis and public engagement, these academics and uh, researchers and universities, sometimes policymakers, provide important insights and expertise that can inform policy decisions and public debate. Academics, in some cases, need additional support to help frame the issue in a way that is accessible and relevant to a broader audience, which can help, again, uh, catalyze collective action. So there is some layer of translation that is needed to translate the technical knowledge and science into more approachable, tangible tactics and, and action points. 
You mentioned uh, that climate anxiety can push people into denial of the realities of climate change. So I wonder if you could give us an idea of what the data generally can tell us about climate deniers, climate denial, what drives them, when and where are they most active? There are many studies that have already shown us that it's a small but a vocal minority of people that deny the scientific consensus on climate change. But now we can actually see with our data where they're located, come up with these these answers to these questions that you ask. How are they talking about climate change? What are their arguments? And why do they believe? What are their motivations? And we have to remember, though, that there is no one-size-fits-all answer to what drives these group of people, because their motivations can vary quite widely. Some may have financial or political interests, uh, while others may hold ideological beliefs. Still, others may be misinformed or lack a solid understanding of the science behind climate change. Having said this, our particular research into climate skeptics and climate deniers uncovers some very interesting insights. The denier, this or skeptic group, is significantly smaller than the believers, but punches way above its weight in terms of online discourse. In our climate change data set, we found about 4 million conversations that we can attribute to deniers and 116 million for the believers. So the whole denier conversation is less than 3%. Yet these posts have accrued over a billion views, uncounting as we speak, because they will still be getting more engagement. So that's, that's our first finding. Interestingly, the dominant emotion within this group is also sadness, very similar to the believer group, and has big spikes of fear. That shows there is a lot of commonality between these groups. Another finding was that major global campaigns like Earth Day do not have a big impact on this group. Very interestingly, my, my favorite one is that most popular content from deniers also appeals to science and logic. As an example, one tweet that got very high engagement actually says, the science says climate change is right. The earth is cooling now for the last three years. And 1935 is the hottest year on record. It's so easy to make some uh, make something like this. I mean, it takes two seconds to type this out, but probably takes two years to disprove this. And you need to take up data. It, it puts so much burden of proof on the other side to refute some uh, off-the-cuff remark by somebody else. But this is one of the posts that got so much, so much attention and engagement within that particular group. So we've talked about some insights, some pretty amazing trends and use of big data. But I guess I have a question about how that's been used so far. What have you used it for? What can it lead us to as communicators, as people trying to intervene and, and have an impact uh, in a positive way? There are many ways that we have already used, and we could still continue to find additional use cases as well. By analyzing these conversations, we can gain insights into the most salient issues and concerns, because some concerns in the US are not the same as in Australia. The concerns in Ethiopia or Nigeria are not the same as in India and Pakistan. We can also see what are the key narratives and how this particular narrative is being shifted and changed over time. We can see what particular aspect of climate change is resonating more with a particular audience. Is it about sustainable food? Is it about sustainable fashion? Is it about sustainable transport? It doesn't seem to us, at least from the data, that all of them resonate with all the groups. 
Another very interesting example is using search patterns on how people search for information uh, in Google or other search engines to understand what information voids exist and also uh, understand what misinformation is trending around these information voids. So we can come up with so many interesting uh, applications and findings based on this. For example, we did a study on understanding if we could plot countries on a climate change awareness index. So on one hand, we had countries where we could clearly see the majority of the search volumes were around what is global warming? What are the signs of global warming? On the other hand, you had countries where the discussion was around the Paris Agreement, uh, climate psychology, eco-anxiety. So it's, it's, it's a whole spectrum where we can actually plot countries and population groups on the level of their particular climate change awareness dimension. And we're also in the middle of a study where we're using social media data to track air pollution and noise pollution in cities around the world. And seeing real-time uh, mentions of this online and then tracking it with sensor data or uh, citizen-generated open data sets around the world. So we're, we're layering in multiple data sources to build a more nuanced picture around all of this. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communication endeavors? I think it's a very straightforward answer, at least in my opinion. The single most important aspect of communication is the audience. Effective communication is not just about delivering a message. It's about delivering a message that resonates with the audience and more importantly, that meets their needs. So to communicate effectively, we need to understand our target, who they are, what they care about, what they know, what they need to know, and at Ripple Research, this first step of audience-focused communication is what we call listening. This is a listening that we do using our technologies and our algorithms and our data sets and so on. And with these tools, we can go further and understand not only our audience's demographics, but we can also understand their wants, their needs, their fears, their desires, their ambitions, and their motivations. And the uh, partner piece to that question then is, What's the biggest mistake you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? One of the biggest mistakes I see is framing the issue solely in terms of its scientific or technical aspects. While the science behind climate change is important, focusing solely on technical details can make the issue feel abstract and distant to many people. I personally don't know what 1.5 degrees means in real world terms to me. I don't know how much uh, carbon credit will equal to or how much a particular unit of emissions will matter to me in my daily life. All of these things are so abstract and so remote, they don't really help me plan my decisions or take better action. And this is where I think we need to change the conversation and make the same cases, but in a more relatable way, in a more humanistic way, and put the user at the center of all of this rather than just give them technical information. And maybe if I can add another one, uh, another mistake is focusing too much on doom and gloom or negative messaging. And this can take so many different ways. And this is what the media is geared to do. And this is what the social media algorithms are designed to do. They're promoting 
outrage and doom and gloom because for some reason that drives the highest engagement. But just focusing on this, as we noted earlier, without focusing on solutions or, or escape routes, uh, makes this so, so complicated and contributes to the climate anxiety. And a part of the negative messaging is also, I want to add, the othering. So the in-group versus out-group, us versus them, the whole idea of polarization. I think if we can avoid that, I think that would be, that would be great. What is it exactly that drives positive emotions and responses in citizens who are engaged in climate change? Hmm. This is a trillion dollar question, right? Uh, I can attempt to answer this through a combination of our data-driven evidence as well as my own personal subjective opinion. I mean, using our algorithms, we can we can unpack emotions in online posts and in communities. We can understand emotions like joy, anger, frustration, sadness, fear, surprise. By diving deeper into the drivers of these emotional states, we can also uncover a few factors that can drive and inspire positive emotions in citizens seeking to combat climate change. So while on one hand it's important to understand what drives negativity, it's also useful to flip it around and say, can it drive positive outcomes? Can it drive positive emotions? So an important factor that we've uncovered is that of hope and optimism. For us, this seems to be what is currently missing and what needs to be amplified more. And despite the serious nature of the climate crisis, many people feel a sense of hope and optimism that we can create a better future. They are inspired by the progress that has already been made in reducing emissions, developing clean technologies, and they can also believe that we can continue to make progress if we work together. So this hope and optimism is an important factor. And the second one, which is linked to this, is a sense of purpose. People who are actively engaged in climate action, they, they have a sense of purpose. They have a meaning in their lives. And they feel that they're making a positive contribution to the world and people around them through their actions and that they are building a better future. So we need to nurture these emotional states, even though they're in very budding stages, even though they're not very prominent everywhere, but I think we need to encourage them. It was fascinating to talk to Ravi about Ripple Research's work. It really set my imagination running. But what stuck with you from this conversation? What can you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, it was the fact that all of Ripple Research's work starts with listening. That's something we've heard so many previous guests highlight as a missing piece in communicating climate change. Maybe this isn't exactly what those guests had in mind. It's a pretty novel approach, looking at the biggest repository of moment-by-moment -moment social data we could ever hope to find, but it reveals a process that starts in the right place, with the audience. Another thing that caught me was a turn of phrase that Ravi used. Presumably the result of his background in tech and data science, he referred to audiences as users. Now, on the surface that might seem like nothing special, but I think it's a pretty constructive way to think about the recipients of our communications outreach. It puts them at the centre of it. It conceptualises them as the driving force, not just some passive recipient. I like it. I think there's something to be gained from approaching our work with that kind of mentality. But how about you? What will you be taking with you into your communications endeavours? Thanks to Ravi Srinath for sharing his time and insights with the show. It was great. You can find links to Ripple Research's website as well as their work on climate anxiety and polarisation in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. 
You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the skills and inspiration that we'll need for this unprecedented task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.